We're jumping into Jonah chapter 4, and uh, so what I want to do before we jump into that is is read a poem by the British poet Thomas Carlyle, who tries to depict what Jonah 4 is really kind of about, and he calls it addiction. Consistently, Jonah chided his stupid and incredible creator for his addiction to mercy, as though it were some miracle drug. A deity ought to be dependably capricious to keep the natives in line. Decimating that overpopulated slum would wipe out delinquency in a hurry. Naturally, Nineveh would make a perfect target, that is, once he was safely outside. See, we've been following along the story of this hypocritical and rebellious prophet, the man of God who runs from God and hates God, um, who, who was called upon by God to go preach to a terribly despicable and notoriously evil um, people who, who had put into place the systemic system of oppression, injustice, and, and, and brutality on planet Earth. They were truly terrible people. And so God says to Jonah, why don't you go preach to them, preach an offer of salvation and hope to them, um, maybe they'll repent. And Jonah's like, no way, why would I do that, God? And so Jonah runs from God, and in his running away from God, he goes into this spiritual slumber where he just keeps going down, 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 and he's this wrecking ball in the lives of everybody else, and everybody is awake to what God is doing except Jonah, to the point that it takes him to the absolute bottom, and God sends this instrument of what seems like death to actually become, ironically, an instrument of life that wakes him up to what God is doing in his life and the spiritual, uh, uh, the spiritual things that are happening all around him. And so when he gets to the bottom, he finally has this small, slight turn to gratefulness, despite all of the things that have been happening to him at this point, because he finally is realizing, like, God is actually uh, working in my life. And so when the, the great fish finally vomits Jonah back out onto dry land, um, he says, okay, I will go to Nineveh. As he goes to Nineveh, however, it seems more like a concession than an absolute desire to do so. Because as he's preaching to the natives of Nineveh, right, the Assyrians, the people who live there, as he's going through and preaching this message from God, he actually doesn't deliver the entire message. He only says five words. He preaches a five-word sermon. It's a terrible sermon. He barely says what God said. He doesn't even talk about God. And everybody repents, okay? Which you would think if, if you were like a prophet or a preacher, this would be an amazing line on your resume. Like, I went and preached to Sin City and everybody got saved. Like, I would love to just walk down the strip in Las Vegas, preach a five-word sermon, and the entire city is on their knees. You know what I mean? Like, that would be amazing. I would, I would actually, if I ever interviewed any other place ever again, that would be the first thing I would say. You know, you'd think any other prophet in the Hebrew scriptures would be like, this is something I've been longing for. Look at Jeremiah, preached an entire life, wrote this entire book of prophecy that God, and nobody gets saved, right? And Jeremiah actually is trying to follow God. And, and this whole time, Jonah's like sabotaging what he's doing. And so it's this amazing book that we've been seeing, this, this book that is almost written in this comic book-like style where, where um, everything's extreme and intense and all of the characters don't live up to their stereotypes and there's tons of irony and drama. Um, and so actually, we, we've been trying, in a sense, to rescue this book, our understanding of this book from what has been delivered to us and mediated to us through children's me, uh, media because the reality is, when we typically think of the book of Jonah, we usually think about a tomato and a cucumber and something about veggie tales 
and this, this tale seems very mundane, and we've been like exploring, like, oh my word, this is, this is an amazing book that is written in such livid color. And so um, one of the things I've really appreciated is Grant Overbeek's drawings. This is the fourth week. Um, he's depicted this fourth drawing for us. Um, to help us understand maybe what the book of Jonah might possibly look like if it were written a little bit more in a comic book style, which is really the type of genre that we're given in the book of Jonah. And, but not only that, abundantly beyond that, it's not just comic for the sake of being funny or cute. It's actually comic for the uh, uh, sake of delivering satire, a prophetic satire, because you're, you're supposed to get drawn into this book. You're supposed to be like, wow, what is going on? Like, Jonah, you seem so intensely angry, like God's sending this great fish, and there's this great storm, and, and you're drawn into the story until the point where we get to today. What we're going to see is right at the end, there's this turn of focus that says, wait a second, you're missing the point if you think it's about Jonah. And you're like, whoa. And there's this mind-blowing moment we're going to get to at the end. So that's, that's Jonah in a nutshell so far. Um, and what I've tried to do is take the ocean of, uh, of what there is to know about Jonah, which is, I really wish I could have preached four hours every Sunday. Um, there was so much here, and I've tried to distill it down into a little cup. And so um, I, I, I've been loving this study in the book of Jonah. Um, and so, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump back in. We're going to meet up with Jonah. Everybody is saved. And what does Jonah think about this? Like, how does he respond? You would think this would be an amazing, like, career-defining moment for Jonah. Check this out. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what Nineveh did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he threatened. Chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased. He was very displeased and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said? I knew it. This was why I was so flee to, uh, quick to flee to Tarshish. This was why I was so quick to run to the absolute other end of planet Earth that I knew about. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And, okay, the level of, of irony just goes so deep right here. First of all, this is the first prayer prayed at all by Jonah. Like, this... In the entire Bible, this is the only prayer that we see of Jonah's, is in chapter 4. And um, everybody else is clued into what's going on. Everybody else is interacting with God up until this point in the story. And finally, Jonah's like, yeah, I'll talk to God now. And he's, he's so angry at him. He's so angry at him. Um, but not only that, I, 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 want, I wonder if you catch what Jonah is saying. I, I hope it sounds maybe slightly familiar. Jonah says this. He says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This phrase is actually one of the most repeated descriptions of God in the entire Old Testament. It's repeated over a dozen different times. And in fact, among Jewish audiences, it probably was one of the most famous verses you could think of. Besides the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is one of the most famous descriptions of God and one of the most famous verses in the entire Old Testament. And, and what Jonah is doing is he's quoting this verse from Exodus 34 that quotes God's own description of himself. In his religious delusions and in the irony of them, Jonah is trying to insult God by quoting God back to God. Okay, this is really comical because this verse 
that Jonah quotes in Exodus 34. You can actually turn there because I'm going to reference it in a moment. Exodus 34, verse 5. This verse that Jonah quotes actually follows an interaction between God and his people. Right? God had just brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're now beyond the Red Sea. He just delivered them through water. Maybe a similar picture, right? He delivered them through the sea. They're out on the other side now. And God wants to set up a covenant with his people. And so what God does is he brings Moses up on the top of Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord descends like a cloud on top of the mountain. And it's just like shaking the mountain. And there's thunder everywhere and lightning emanating from this top point of the mountain. And the people down on the bottom of the mountain see Moses go up. And then after a while, they kind of forget about him. They're like, wait, where did Moses go? You know what? Here's what we'll do. We will make our own God. And so they, 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 they fashion this golden calf and they say lies about it like, oh, this, this brought us out of Egypt. And so God is justifiably very, 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 very angry at his people, right? Ready to consume them and wipe them off the planet in a moment. And Moses intercedes for his people. And so God actually, instead of bringing judgment on them, actually gives them compassion. He is slow to anger. And instead what he does is he writes the Ten Commandments again a second time. Moses brings them down. God, instead of destroying them, he renews his covenant with them. And, and Moses is, he's amazed, right? This, this thing happens. Moses is in the middle of all of it. He sees the whole thing unfold. And he's just blown away. Like, what? What is happening? Like, who are you that you would do something like this? And this is how God responds. Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and proclaimed his name Yahweh. Now, you're probably reading it says the Lord, but if it's all caps in the Old Testament, that is referring to God's um, unique special name as the only God of the Hebrews, the Israelites, Yahweh. Okay? So, so when it says the Lord in all caps, it means Yahweh. Verse 6. And so he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate in gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, and so on. And so this is what God is saying to Moses about who I am. In other words, Israel would not exist even as a people if God were not this way. The only reason Israel is still around, the only reason God's people are still receiving a relationship with God is because God is this way. So what's funny is that um, Jonah himself would not exist as, as an Israelite. Jonah would not exist in relationship with God if God were not like this at all. But he's just so irrational and he's hot with anger at this point that he's not thinking straight. He's using God's words against him even though they describe the very reason he exists at all. It's like, I knew you were this way, God. Doggone it. You're so gracious. Ugh, I hate that about you. Which is, you're supposed to laugh. Yes. This is funny. You're looking at Jonah going like, oh my word. Jonah, you're, there's, there's very few people who at this point in the story are sympathizing with Jonah. I said, we're looking at him and, and, and you're, you're, you're thinking, man, you're so ridiculous, Jonah. You wouldn't exist if God were not this way. Like, what, what are you thinking? And, and so he is being ridiculous, but what Jonah 4 is actually doing and what we're going to see is Jonah 4 is going to expose um, the dark side of God's grace and mercy, so to speak. 
It's the scandal of God's grace, the liberality of God's of his love and the wideness of his mercy. Because of course, I'm quite happy if I realize that I've messed up as a person and I turn to Jesus and he shows me his grace. Sweet. But then there's this other complex thing that happens as a Christian when you realize that not only is Jesus like that to me, he's, he's like that to the person that I despise the most. And then all of a sudden, man, God, your grace is overstepping its bounds because they clearly don't deserve it. And so here we, we see, and maybe we even understand the motivation for Jonah criticizing God's grace. It's actually kind of understandable. Because it seems extreme because of the storytelling style that is used here. Um, but if we were in Jonah's situation, we may actually find ourselves feeling a very similar way about God. Like we love this idea about grace. We sing songs about grace. Some even name their daughters Grace. My daughter's name is Grace, by the way. It's this beautiful thing until it begins to include people that we despise and we can't stand. We love how wide God's mercy is until it captures the person that I like the least. And then it's really disturbing, this whole grace thing. And that's what Jonah is, Jonah 4 is about. Like Jonah's not as crazy as he seems. He's depicted as ridiculous, yes, but the motivation behind Jonah's critique of God's grace are probably very similar to the motivations we have in our self-centered view of morality. It's, it's humbling how understanding this, understandable this is. And so what God is going to do in this chapter is he's going to try three times to get Jonah to see what he sees, to feel how he feels about people who are very different from him people who are apart from him, right? So, so let's jump in. Jonah chapter 4, uh, we're at verse 4 here. So, so the Lord, well, Jonah 3, Jonah 4, 3. Now, Lord, take away from me my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I hate how gracious you are, God. Just kill me now. Jonah 4, the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah, is your, is your anger unto death, is it justifiable? And, and what is Jonah's response? Jonah just like stonewalls God. He storms off. And he doesn't answer him. Check this out. Jonah, is your anger justifiable? Verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. <clears throat> he doesn't even answer God. He just like sits out here. He builds a shelter and just hunkers down. You know, have you ever talked to someone? They're so mad at you. They don't even, they, just, they leave. And you're like, what? Was it something I said? Is it something I didn't say? Clearly God's not in the wrong here. And Jonah just leaves. And first of all, this is funny. Because Jonah thinks he can ignore God. He thinks he can run away from God. Like he's, he hasn't learned anything yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Jonah thinks he can run away from God. He thinks he can ignore God. Which is funny. But the second thing going on is he clearly doesn't know God. He doesn't understand God's heart. If at all. He just quoted back to God the most wonderful thing about God. One of the most beautiful, mind-blowing things about God's grace. He is slow to anger, slow to compassion, abounding in love and faithfulness and loving kindness and, and giving mercy 
to generation after generation. He quotes this back to God. He clearly doesn't believe it because what is he doing? He, he goes outside of the city and he builds himself a shelter, meaning he's clearly intending to stay there for a while. Why? You just saw what God was trying to do with the city. They all repented. Why are you still sitting here? Because there's something he's clearly expecting to see still. Right? What, what does it seem like Jonah is expecting? What, what do we know for sure Jonah wants to happen? Probably something terrible in the judgment of God. He's probably still waiting for fire from heaven. Which brings us back to his five-word sermon in Jonah 3. There's actually a lot more here that I didn't mention last week. I wanted to save it till this week. Jonah's angry for so many reasons, but specifically because God has played a trick on Jonah. A beautiful trick, a wonderful trick. It's amazing. I love this. Really quick, flip back to chapter 3. Okay, Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Do you remember what Jonah said in his five-word sermon as he's walking into Nineveh? Right? Jonah, four, or Jonah 3, 4 says, he, he proclaims, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And this is a very odd sermon for very many reasons. It's incredibly short. Five words in Hebrew. It's like uh, eight words in English. I'm clearly not capable of a sermon like that. Um, but the second thing is he seems only to care about one thing. As he's preaching, right? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's all he says. He, he, he's got one thing in mind as he's preaching through this. And this is beautiful. This is like a mic drop moment for God. I love this. Because as he's declared, walking through the city... Right? He's speaking in Hebrew, and the, 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 the word he uses, 40 more days, and, and Nineveh will be hapak. That's, that's the Hebrew word that in English we see here translated overturned. And this word actually can have a few different meanings in Hebrew based on the context and the intent of the speaker. Now, that's nothing new. Like, we do this in English, right? Um, every language, in fact, has context lends meaning to a word. So you take the word um, heat, for example, right? So if I'm baking or something like that, and I said, man, I, I think it's not... I might need to turn up the heat, okay? It's 375, you said 400, I think I need to turn up the heat. So in that context, heat would refer to temperature, right? If I were in a boardroom or like a meeting, for example, and uh, I said something like, man, the heat was really on him during that presentation, you would understand naturally that heat in that context means like social pressure or something like that. Very different from temperature. If it was a sports context and I was watching like the Detroit Tigers playing or something like that, like, man, that pitcher was really throwing some heat today. And you would understand from the context that heat indicates speed. The pitcher was throwing a ball really, really fast. Right? And so, and so you, you get this. Like in, this, isn't nothing, this isn't anything new. In language, this is how words work. And so Hebrew, we see actually even in the pages of Scripture, the word hapak used a number of different ways. So, for example, Hosea chapter 7 um, Hosea is delivering a word from God. God is saying, Ephraim is a flat cake, not hapak, not turned over. It's using a metaphor, drawing a metaphor for the people of God in, in the northern ten tribes of Israel, saying, they're not turned over. They're like this. Okay, so the word there is re referring to um, being turned over. In Lamentations chapter 4, it says, the punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was hapak in a moment without a hand to help. Sodom, if you remember, was like the archetype of sinful people. And, and they were destroyed by God because they didn't repent at the preaching of Lot and Abraham. And so, and so they were destroyed. Fire came down from heaven. And so in this sense, hapak means overthrown. 
like destroyed, conquered, overthrown. Psalm 30, David says, you hopak my wailing into dancing, you remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. And it, there's even more of a nuance here where it means like changed or transformed. You, you changed or transformed my wailing into dancing. And so in, in Hebrew, hapak can, can mean a number of different things, such as overturned, overthrown, transformed. So it's, here's, here's what's so brilliant. Which meaning of these do you think Jonah intended when he walked through Nineveh? The second one, right? Overthrown, conquered. Like he wants Sodom. He wants that kind of a moment like this with Nineveh. 40 more days and you're going to die. <laughs> like that's his mindset as he's walking through Nineveh. Which meaning do you think God intended and actually carried out? Isn't this wonderful? This is, this is so cool because God actually like uses Jonah's words against him just like Jonah was trying to use his words against God. And God actually plays this beautiful trick on Jonah. And it's like really funny. Jonah's not laughing. He's ticked. He's, he's livid with anger. Look at this. God doesn't let Jonah get away with anything in the story, right? Jonah tries to run from God. God grabs him with a great fish and brings him right back to his purposes. Jonah tries to use his, he, he, so when he, when he comes back, he thinks maybe, um, okay, I'll go to Nineveh anyway, but I'm going to engage in prophetic sabotage. I'll give them as little information as possible to ensure they still get fire from heaven. And even that doesn't work because God uses Jonah's words against him. This is, this is a brilliantly told story. I, I love all the layers of irony and back and forth between God and Jonah as Jonah's trying to be so petty and so self-centered. And God's like, you know, I think I'm going to use even that for my glory. Isn't this brilliant? This is amazing. And so Jonah is livid with anger. God intent, used what he intended for evil and turned it into good. And so Jonah is just, he's furious to the point of not even having words at this point. He just, Ugh! so he's sitting outside the walls. He builds this shelter for himself, and he's just waiting for something terrible to happen. And it was in that moment of Jonah's like deepest emotion that God meets him and tries to engage him a second time. And the first time, Jonah didn't respond well, right? God asked him if his anger is justified. He just storms off, doesn't even give him an answer. So this time, God's going to try something a little bit different. Notice this, okay? Jonah chapter 4. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about it. Like this is, okay, this is the only time in the entire story Jonah's happy. And how happy is he? Very happy, extremely happy. Okay, he went with anger, and now he's over the moon, happy. He's just like, yes, woo! Right? And he's, he's just super pumped about this plant. His anger is great. His happiness is great. He kind of seems a little bit bipolar, maybe. Um, and so, as intense as his anger is, it's just as powerful with his happiness. His mood swings are iconic, y'all. They're amazing. Just like, whoa, the full spectrum. And so, verse 7, the dawn the next day, God provided a little worm, which chewed at the vine so it withered. Now, before I keep going, sure, God sends a huge storm. God sends a great fish, and now God sends a little tiny worm. Like, the, the, the contrast is amazing, because the storm, this life-threatening storm, left Jonah unfazed. He, in fact, he slept through it, just unnoticed. And then the great fish that swallowed Jonah, 
maybe even a worse experience. And Jonah actually has this strange positive turn to gratefulness in the middle of the fish. And then all of a sudden, God sends this little tiny worm, and Jonah just crashes. The only thing that has made him happy so far is taken away. Notice what happens next. It chewed the vine so it withered, and when the sun rose, God provided this scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. Jonah said it would be better for me to die than live. Jonah, (laughs) help me understand this here, man. Uh, You were just so happy and now you want to die? What is going on with you, my man? You, you are experiencing the full range of human emotion. And I, I hope you're like starting to notice the comic elements of this story, right? It is crazy. And we're just like, what? What is this story about? This is, this is amazing. Here's what this story is about. Look at verse 9. God says to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Notice this. The first time God says, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? Is your, is your anger justified about, about these people repenting? He's, he ignores God. Right? He hates those people. Don't talk to me about that. So God actually approaches him a second time. He, he provides something that, that actually makes him quite happy. He, he loves it. And this is the way God is trying to connect with Jonah's emotions here. Okay. This time he frames the question a little bit differently. Now that this thing that you really, really like is taken away from you, is destroyed, Jonah, is your anger about a plant justified? Your anger to the point of wanting to die? Is, is, it, is it right that you're angry about this plant? And this is, this is what's referred to in the world of counseling and psychology as facilitating, right? God is, God is pointing him to an answer that Jonah should be able to grasp now that it's framed a little bit differently. And, and God does this brilliantly well. This is amazing. This should be enough to shake Jonah out of his irrational thinking. So here's what Jonah says. Verse 9, do you have any right to be angry about the, van, about the vine? Jonah says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. And... <laughs> I also want to just give your hand, throw your hands up and just give up. Like Jonah is clearly beyond rational thinking here. He, he doesn't, he's not even making sense to himself. Like this plant, it provided shade for you. It dies. Now you want to die. What's going on with you, Jonah? And, and, and so actually God doesn't give up though. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't throw his hands up. You know why? Because God is a gracious God. He's compassionate. Like Jonah told him. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's, he's committed to Jonah. God is committed to his people. So God actually approaches Jonah a third different way, from a different perspective. Verse 10, the Lord said, Jonah, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It, it sprang up and died. Over. Let's just, let's assume for a moment, Jonah, that you're experiencing these extreme emotions about this plant, and maybe just for a moment, let's say that they're, they're, that they're possibly legitimate. Though you did absolutely nothing at all to warrant this grace that I just gave you. You didn't even plant this. You didn't even try to get it. I just blessed you. You didn't care for it. You didn't protect it. You, but you have so much desire for this tiny plant. So let's just say for a moment... That maybe your emotion, I will grant you this, Jonah, that your emotion may be possibly legitimate. 
wouldn't it be just as legitimate, Jonah? Or maybe even more so, you might grant me, that I might have great compassion and care for, oh, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of people made in my image. Verse 11, he says, but Nineveh is more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, which just speaks to their spiritual blindness, not their, their intellectual um, absence, because they clearly understood the message that God was giving them. They, they turned. There's not that they're dumb, but he's saying they, they have spiritual blindness. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? Wouldn't you say, Jonah, that it might be a legitimate emotion for me to experience and maybe even more so, that I would care about people? The end. <laughs> Wait, um, it's over so soon? Like, what happens? What, what? This is brilliant of God. I'm going to unpack this for a second. This, I hope you notice what's going on. This is amazing. First, God tries to expose to Jonah um, how foolish it is that God would be how foolish it is to be angry at God that he would show mercy and compassion to the Ninevites. That clearly didn't get through to Jonah. So God tries to expose Jonah's anger in a different way. He, he grants Jonah the blessing of this plant and allows it to be consumed as a picture of how God might possibly feel about Nineveh being destroyed. Like, Jonah, let me help you feel an emotion that I might be feeling. And in this, God's trying yet again to demonstrate how illegitimate Jonah's anger is towards this plant. He's, he's not getting it. He's, he's not seeing this at all. Jonah is, in fact, he's refusing to see God's point of view. And so now God's actually approaching Jonah from a different angle. He's not even anymore trying necessarily to expose Jonah's anger. He's coming at it almost from an opposite direction. He's, he's recognizing um, Jonah's actually happy about something for once in this story. He's actually concerned about something other than himself. And yes, it's something that makes him happy. But Jonah, for once, is concerned about something other than himself. There's this little corner in his heart that cares about something beyond him. And, and so God says, look, you know what? We can work with that. We can work with that. So God approaches him saying, you have this soft spot of emotion and care for this, this little plant, this little tiny plant. And let's assume, just for a moment, that your deep emotion about this thing that's not you is legitimate. That's good. Jonah, good job that you should be care concerned and caring about something other than you. Well done. Well done, Jonah. Now, let's make a slightly unbalanced comparison. Would you grant me this, Jonah? Would it be okay with you? That I might have a strong emotional attachment for something other than myself. And I don't know, maybe that concern is slightly more significant. You might grant me, Jonah. Like the lives of thousands upon thousands of human beings who are made in my image. Would that be okay with you, Jonah? This is, this is a brilliant line of questioning, right? This is, God is like bringing Jonah to see something that he's not up to seeing. This is, this is amazing. God is, is working Jonah's, not only his mind, but his emotional capacity to understand what God sees already. And so how does Jonah respond? Like, what does he do now? Does he ever come around to become compassionate and care for other people like God? 
Like, how does this story finish? We don't actually get the answer. Because that's not the point of the book of Jonah. The story was never about Jonah in the first place. Who is the story about? The story first is about God and his care and concern for the souls of lost people. And the story is about you and what you do with that. See, the the real question is, how is God using this story to expose the self-centered and small-minded worldview of God's people? That's what this story is designed to affect. The primary effect of this book is, is demonstrated in how God's people receive this message and then live out the answer to God's questions right at the end. That's what's really going on about in this book. The brilliance of this story is that it wraps you up in the humor and the irony and the drama. And then as it approaches the end, it doesn't actually give us a final scene. It gives us a mirror. Because how you live differently as a result of reading this book, that's the final scene. Jonah is this beautiful drama of the scandal of God's grace that that God would love you and care for you when you don't deserve it and even when you spurn it. And he loves your enemy in the same way, just as much. And in fact, he actually goes just as far to to ask you to love your enemy, to partner with him in loving your enemy that much too. Here's what Jonah, or God is trying to get Jonah to see. Yes, Jonah, I love you. I'm committed to you. You are part of my people, even though you didn't deserve this. Even though you take that for granted. God, Jonah, I love you so much. I am committed to you. But that doesn't for a second excuse your religious hypocrisy. Did you earn my love? Do you deserve my faithfulness? Have you done anything at all to make this covenant happen? Have have you, through your own merit, sustained this relationship with me? No. Jonah, you you don't deserve this at all. So what right do you have to stand in my way as I show mercy to thousands more? And even possibly use you to help me do that? This is where it gets hard to swallow. Because it's, it's one thing to receive this love and recognize I don't deserve it. Be overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God that is lavishly poured out in my life. And it's a bigger thing that God might actually call me to love the next person that much. I mean, just even to recognize, man, God loves my enemy. You know, the, the person that I received a deep and painful wound from, when, you, when you're taken advantage of by a certain person, When your longing and desire and trust is betrayed by somebody you thought you loved. You thought loved you. When you needed protection and received abuse and aggression. When your reputation or sense of well-being is dashed into pieces. When you've experienced a trauma that you never would have asked for. God actually loves that person just as much as he loves you. And that is really hard to accept. The scandal of God's grace is seen on the other side of that. 
when he actually invites you to participate with him in actions of loving that person the way he does. Why? Because this is the point of the gospel. This is what the good news of Jesus does. This is, these are the barriers that it breaks down. Apart from what Jesus did on our behalf to make us right with God, none of us have any moral high ground to point out the sin of another. Yet in God's amazing grace, he, he still offers new life and eternity to us. And we have absolutely no place to tell God when to stop and who to stop with. Which means that, this is hard to swallow, that the oppressed and the oppressor are deeply loved by God. God loves you and the person you hope he doesn't. Why? Because in relation to eternity, you stand in the same spot. Made in his likeness, yet desperately needing his love. I don't know, Pastor Brett. I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I understand. It just seems so hard. It seems so hard to take in. I agree. I totally agree. But you need to let it sink in. Jesus says it this way. This is Luke chapter 6. I tell you those who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. It's, just, it's not just a Jesus thing. This, this is the heart of God throughout the whole Bible. And we respond to God's word in some of the most bizarre ways. If we're being honest, we read something like this and we, we think, ah, what? I mean, that's noble and, and, and nice of you, God, to say that, but uh, no, I'm just not going to live like that. The world doesn't work like that. No, thank you, God. And, and, if, and if, you, if you look at how we actually live, we're like that concept. But when God actually, we, we love this. We love talking about grace. But when God actually asks us to love people who hurt us, who oppose us, who are different from us in very significant ways, not just in our words, but also in our actions and how we make them feel and how we go out of our way to take care of them and listen to them and provide for their needs. When, when God actually asks us to love people who are different from us or even who are our enemies, who we don't like, who mistreat us, we actually refuse. That we, we tell God that the world doesn't work that way, but instead what God is doing is he's opening us a window to his heart a mirror to our own heart and says, no, actually, that is how I designed the world to work. You're the one who got it mixed up. You're the one who has it backwards. Can I, can I show you a better way? Can I show you what reconciliation and, and redemption is all about? This, this is what God is doing to us in this story. And I, and I wish I was talking only in generalities about just the way things are in our country. But most of the time, the first examples of I, I see of this are in my own life and in the communities that I'm a part of. And yes, there are beautiful 
and wonderful exemption, exempt, uh, I'm sorry, wonderful exceptions. And I'm looking at many of them right now. But if we're being honest, we don't really want to live up to the standard. This is what Jonah is about. That God's love is scandalous. It's for you and it's for you. So what are you going to do with this? I told you there was a gut punch coming at the end. We read this. And this, is a, this is almost an impossibly high standard. That, that I, I read this and I go, that, there is no way. This seems impossibly hard to live up to. Especially in a human sense. Like, I, I, how on planet earth am I supposed to love somebody who I'm pretty sure will abuse again? How am I supposed to love somebody who I'm pretty sure didn't get how much I love them? How am I supposed to go out of my way and sacrifice and do things that feel so unnatural, like in terms of like loving somebody and caring for somebody and praying for them, when I know that they're just going to keep doing what they used to do that hurt me so bad? That seems so hard. Help! I need a savior! And that's the point. That's what this is supposed to lead you to ask. I'm not trying to be cute or trite. I recognize there are real stories of deep wounds and pain here in this room and watching us online. I fully understand that there is a, a legitimate place inside of us that asks, how am I supposed to find it in myself to extend grace and mercy to those who have hurt me and probably will do again? And that is the question we're supposed to be asking because when I finally reach out my hand in desperate need of saving, when I need God to rescue me from the worst parts about me, that's exactly when he meets me with a savior. That's exactly when he steps into my story with mercy and grace. And then so Jonah 4 meets us in this real place of having received mercy and grace yet still having to live with messed up people. Right, because how many of us would agree with this? Maybe you have one person in your life that makes you think, man, following Jesus would be so much easier if I never crossed paths with that person. Like, I, I know how to be patient. I know how to love. I know how to speak tenderly, except when I'm around that person. My life would be so much better if they weren't around. And Jonah 4 flips that around and says, could it be? That this person is in your life precisely as a divine vehicle to assist you in your process of becoming more compassionate and patient and loving and merciful, just like God. Could it be that this person is God's invitation to you to let him shape you into his likeness and receive a deeper level of grace? Could it be... Do you think God might possibly be so good as to earnestly desire to make you more like him? Compassionate and loving and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. 
We get to stories like this. And they raise our awareness to the impossibly high standard of God and and our own insufficiency to attain it. And the wonderful provision of a Savior who meets us in the worst part of our story and transforms us into God's image for His glory. That in my greatest need, when I reach out for a saving, He meets me with a Savior. That in my greatest need, when the standard is so high, when I can't possibly live up to this calling that I've been called to, when God meets me in my story and says, let me partner with you to do something that you can't possibly do. And you just go, ah, I need help. And he goes, exactly. That's why I'm right here. Because if you remember, God's point, God's purpose for your life is not actually your happiness. God's purpose for your life is to make you more like his son Jesus. God's purpose, his design, the the function that he plays in your life is to make you more like himself. But how are you supposed to be patient if you never get a chance to practice that? How are you supposed to be like God who is slow to anger unless you're given something that might actually possibly make you angry and you choose a very slow route to that? How are you supposed to be faithful in a short moment? That's not faithfulness. That's just one good decision. And so God's purpose for your life is to make you more like him. And and in order to do that, sometimes he designs precisely the person as a vehicle to transform you in his grace. This is the scandal of God's grace. That he loves you and the person who's opposing you. And so we get to this point and we just go, I can't do that. And there's two options. We either go, no, thank you, God. Or you go, "Ah, help. Help. And here's the good news, that if you are God's own, you're not alone. If you're God's own, you're not alone. And this kind of moves two different ways. Because number one... If you've received God's love when you least deserved it, if you're God's own, you're not alone. Because the next person is also receiving God's love. The person you can't stand is also a recipient of God's love. But not only that, he invites you into this divine mission of extending his tender mercies and compassionate love to your enemies. Something that seems legitimately impossible from a human point of view. But if you're God's own, you're not alone. Y'all, he hasn't abandoned you or left you an orphan once he brought you into his family. He's not just watching from up in the sky, waiting for you to mess up and then going, ha ha, I knew it. No, no, no. If you're God's own, you're not alone. He's around you and he's within you and he's going before you and he's strengthening you to do what you couldn't possibly do on your own. God is making you and God is making us as a community, a people who are characterized by compassion and by love and by slowness to anger and by tender mercies and by by faithfulness and loving kindness if if we are God's own we are not alone that God is actually working in you and through you to be the one who makes you more like him so that when the world looks at us even though they know the people in our lives are, are difficult they can see what's happening 
They don't need me to tell them that. But when the world looks at us, when the world looks at me and goes, how are you doing that? That is the testimony to God's goodness and his graciousness and his mercy and his loving kindness. Because it is shining through your life. If you're God's own, you are not alone. He loves you unreservedly. And he loves your enemy that much too. And he even goes so far as to calling you to partner with him in that divine mission. But you're not alone. You never were. You never will be. God is with you. God, I pray that as, as we receive your mercy and as we partner with you in your divine mission to bring that to people who are so very different from us. God, as, as, as we've been amazed and overwhelmed at the loving faithfulness of you in our lives, and, and we love to sing songs about it, God, I pray that this would be part of who we are, that we don't just receive it, that, but we live it. That we would be the people who live out the final scene in Jonah. That we would be the ones who have not only been affected, but been transformed by your faithfulness. God, make us a people who are a testimony to your glory on planet Earth. Amen.